raindrop reflecting on the water as the sun shuts her eyes. Don't know why you uncover. Watch the tide rolling with the moonlight. Everything is silent on this wheezy piano. We are missing magnolias, and today we are so excited. We have a wonderful guest, Mr. Todd Matthews from the Doe Network and a host of other places is here to join us. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. I do get around. Well, I'll start at the beginning. Okay. When I was a lowly grad student starting to do research on missing persons, I was in the office of my mentor, Brianna Fox, and we were Googling. Where do we even begin to get data for missing persons? I was collecting my own and it was troublesome. And we stumbled upon NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Network, found a number and we called. Mr. Todd Matthews answered the phone. We asked about the data process and archiving and just sort of how it functioned. You gave us a bunch of info, but you sort of broke our little hearts. You were like, you have to go through the Department of Justice if you want to get your sandwich grabbers on any data. Yeah. So we hung up with you and then we did some more Googling and we found the Doe Network. We found a phone number and we called and a Mr. Don Matthews answered the phone. Ah. It was just a funny story that we have for a while. There was this mystery person who was crime sleuthing and solving crimes and running multiple organizations. We imagined a red phone and a black phone and all the things that you have because you are doing so much. I have three iPhones in my pocket. So you got a different personality for whichever one you had to call. Oh man, there could have been a third number. Darn. I am so pleased to have you here because of the work that you've done. And I know that our listeners probably have a little bit of an idea, but we would love if you could start just telling us about how you sort of came to be you and the kind of work that you do. In October of 1987, I met my future wife. She came from Northern Kentucky to to Tennessee. They had moved here just a little bit across the border in Tennessee. So we're in Northern Tennessee. Ended up in study hall with her. We had already made eye contact in the lunchroom and then ended up in study hall. And we were telling ghost stories because it was Halloween. And then she mentioned Tent Girl. That was the body found by her dad, a murder victim, a Jane Doe. And it just seemed so familiar. It's just like, wait a minute, that sounds like something that I've heard before. And then Lori seemed like somebody that I've met before. So it's just, it's just such a deja vu moment. So that moment in that cafeteria at 17 years old, it was just like there was a different reality that set in. I had no idea at the time a whole other universe just had landed on top of me and I was going to spend the next 33 years in this universe. I never thought I would be here today at 51 still talking about the tent girl. She seemed so familiar. Lori's mom and dad decided to move back to northern Kentucky, their home burnt here in, in Tennessee, and they decided to move back to northern Kentucky, southern Indiana. And Lori decided to stay and we were going to get married a year earlier. We immediately decided we have to be in each other's lives. It was great. She was 17 and I just turned 18 when we got married. I also married an urban legend, which was Tent Girl, which was just incredible. So it's just like, I have a brother and sister that passed away when they were infants. And that made perfect sense to me. I didn't like it, but it was reality. And I understood and accepted it. But Tent Girl was like, that's not a real name on my tombstone. That's a moniker for her. It's Tent Girl. And it was very respectful and very nice, but it's, it's not her name. We basically adopted her. I felt like she was part of Lori's extended family. 
I could always visit my brother and sister. And to think about this, they were dead. My brother and sister have been dead since I was a child. I have one living brother. How could somebody be worse off than they were? Tent Girl was because she was anonymous. Not only was she deceased, she was anonymously deceased. The only thing to do was just treat her like family, which was uh, you visit when you pass through the area, just like I would my own brothers and sisters' grave. As I grew older, you know, I was very young when we got married, I began the journey of pre-internet of trying to find her family. And a lot of us gather. The first phase is gather, 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 gather. And it's just all hard copy, microfilm, driving to get information, talking to my father-in-law and writing down information. And then it was sort and then present. There was a period of that. And the internet came along in the meantime. And I had so much information when the internet came along. I thought, okay, I'll get on there and I'll find the tent girl. I Google searched when there was no Google. Alta Vista, Dogpile, all of those early search engines. So I was looking for missing daughter, sister, mother, niece, whatever. And then I decided to build a page for the tent girl. So there was like a wanted poster for a missing person or an unidentified person that I would put out there. And then I thought, okay, finally somebody will just come to me from this point in time. Well, they didn't. So, but at least I gathered and stored all that data and presented it to the rest of the internet. The internet was so young back then. You would go to people's businesses website. It was basically a, a business card. There was no animated graphics. It was just very, you know, looking back at some of the screenshots from the early internet, it's quite boring compared to today. The ability to communicate with people across the country, across the globe instantly is the magic that the internet brought, more so than the data it withheld. Well, I continued to look and look and look to see if I could find somebody, and then nothing. After I presented her, I waited for people to come to me, and they didn't. So I started looking again, and on their website, it was kind of like the Craigslist of the day. It was called Crane and Hibs was a website, and I was doing the normal, it was like January of 1998, missing daughter, missing this. And, and the website had like missing animals. It had cars for sale, it, it had everything. And then there was a hit on it. It was a missing sister. And the sister, Barbara Hackman Taylor was last seen in December of 1967 in Lexington. That was it. I knew it was that. That was at the time, I didn't realize how heavy that burden was on me. It was like a heavy wet blanket lifted off of me that night. I knew it was her, then it was like, okay, now how do I prove this to the world? So conversations with Rosemary, that was her sister looking for her, hopefully alive, but she wasn't. So it just, how do you call somebody and say, your sister's an urban legend in Kentucky? I built a website so that I could say, okay, here, I think this might be the sister you're looking for. Take it. You know, she agreed that she thought the possibility was really good. And we contacted the sheriff of Scott County, Kentucky. And after a few days, we finally got together and shared information, and it was a viable lead. And then long story short, it was the first person identified using the internet. That's amazing. I love that you talk about this process of gather, sort, present to others. What can come from that? And I mean, that process that you started sounds so simplistic, but we're all still doing that today, desperately trying to gather, sort, and present in all of these cases and to use the internet that we have now in that way. So no big deal, solve an urban legend. Then what's next? How do you get to be somebody who's the head of these organizations? That was the rest of the story. I thought there would be a funeral, meet the family, 
all of that and I thought it'll all be over. This is it. You know, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And but it was just a beginning. And I saw people that were probably my age at the time. And they would talk about you when they'd watch you going through the courthouse in Scott County. And it's like, wow, he's got the world by the tail. And I thought, how so? I had no idea what was coming next. From a time period when I was with the tent girl looking for her, it's just like I couldn't find anybody that cared. And then suddenly everybody cared. I was being interviewed by people in Europe, Australia, everywhere. They wanted interviews because I don't think it was anything that extraordinary. It's just the first time. And there's been so much far more complicated cases. But I think somebody has to be the first one that crosses the desert. And that's what happened. Didn't mean to. It was just a byproduct of the journey was you made it first. And it's just like, well, I wasn't trying to make it first. I was just trying to send her back home where she belonged. After that, I still worked at the factory. I started working in that factory in 1989, and it was an automotive factory built just parts for AC. I met people together. We created the Doe Network. Some people had HTML skills. People had a lot of different skills. We had a cold case discussion group, one of the Yahoo groups, and together we found that there was no single founder of the Doe Network. And Doe Network wasn't, at the time, meant to be an organization. It was a website own the Doe Network, but it's 100% volunteer. Everybody that works there, it's not a nonprofit, but it is 100% volunteer. In 2007, seven years after this, of all of these, you know, getting to be the person on the phone, I got a call. I was on the on a loading dock at the factory, and I got a call from John Paul Jones with the Department of Justice, and they were pretty direct. You're going to be part of a working group to help form a national database called NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. Okay, so I was asked to be present at a national press club release, and I was going to speak there. A car will pick you up, you'll fly to D.C., and they'll take send you back home. So it's like, okay. The anxiety from that set in, like, uh, I have a high school degree, and I'm going to be in a room full of PhDs, anthropologists, odontologists, all of the ologists. What in the world am I going to be able to contribute to it? And when I got there, it just became pretty simple. It was the common sense approach. I saw a lot of data that was being held back. This is our ace in the hole. I literally heard that word. We won't show anybody the ring until they can identify it. And it's like, you know, they've been dead for 40 years. So how long are you going to hold that ace in the hole? We need to share that data with somebody because it might be the last chance. To try to bring as much information forward to the public was my part of the system. You know, this is, I want to get as much information, you know, and everybody had a different sense of, what's classified and what's not classified. So standardize that was part of it, to get as much of a narrative out of there. And there was a major difference from the Doe Network. I have people in the layman's world and people in the Department of Justice world, what's the difference between NamUs and Doe Network? Well, Doe Network doesn't have dental DNA and fingerprint analysis. It has anecdotal newspaper data, stories and pictures and family accounts. And NamUs has some of that to some degree, but it's more of a repository of dental DNA and fingerprints. Both of them can exist without competing with each other. But I had an opportunity to start working with NamUs and be part of it. After we built the databases, we crosswalk all the data, got to be a major part of it. I then become the director of communications and case management for a program that I didn't feel like I was worthy of sitting in that chair. But I had to divorce myself from Doe Network to the point it would be a conflict of interest. And I didn't want it to appear that I was taking data from my security clearance access and sharing it with people that were not cleared to have it. I made sure that there was a very good delineation there. 
I had to grow up really, really fast. This has to be very professional. This has to be very well taken care of with the security clearance and you're working as law enforcement. Before I could actually work in the system, there was NCIC information that I'd have to have access to. I wasn't law enforcement. I wasn't a government official. So I went to my county commission here at Overton County. They made me coroner of Overton County in 2007 so that I would have the law enforcement access. And it was, you know, they understood exactly what we're doing. I wasn't going to act in the role of a coroner, but the coroner level access gave me the credentials to be able to say, okay, I can legitimately receive this data and appropriately push it into the system and do it. So I had to take a few shortcuts, jump a few fences to get to where I was, you know, and I've done that for many, many years. One of my goals is to empirically show how important media attention is in the recovery of missing persons. Crime Door is an app. I don't know if you've seen that. I'm pretty sure you probably have. You know, they asked me to partner with them, and we're going to do a press release really soon that we've jointly written. I always wanted an app for Doe Network, and you really didn't know exactly what it needed to do. And Crime Door says, you want to partner? Yeah, okay, we will. Missing, Missing in the UK, that's a podcast. And they recently had reached out to me and says, can we have an exclusive podcast access to Doe Network and we'll start a missing in the USA? Made an agreement with them. There will be an exclusive agreement between them. And that's with Doe Network as a product, not me. Creatively, the easiest job I've ever done is to be a producer because that's what I would do as director of communication and as the person that worked with the media with Doe Network, that was a natural gravitation. It was just like, I'm a spin doctor. That's just what I do. By nature, I'm a spin doctor. So I try to find ways to make cases that are long gone and forgotten. I don't want to have to solve them myself. Maybe I can make them interested enough that other people will pick them up and try to resolve them. People have so much power nowadays. And I think we don't recognize um, how much power we have if we are connecting to the right communities, if we're doing things the right way. And I, I love that you talk about the value of the general public in this process. Well, when I would hear people in the uh, professional sector scoff at the public sector, just like, hey, I'm in the room here. I'm here. We cannot discount the public. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the three phones. You essentially, you work at home now. You've got these little grandbabies running around and I can't imagine what you get on your phone on a day-to-day basis. How do you keep your home life and your work life separate? I mean, I think that's the question for everyone in the pandemic right now. You don't. And I'm kind of glad of the pandemic because the pandemic put everybody in the same boat I've been in for years. You know, I've worked from home for years. When I was a civilian volunteer sleuth, that was all the way back to 88. There was no internet. And then when the internet came along, that was the job you did when you come home from work. There's nine to five and there's five to nine. (laughs) So that's what I did. So there's always been a homework. And then when NamUs come along, that opportunity to marry your work with your you're nine to five with your five to nine. But the fact of it is you're really working nine to nine. So it just consumed everything. So I've worked mostly from the home. What do you hope for the future of this field? Where do you see things headed? I'm up and down with it. I know the Ancestry DNA, there's DNA Solves and there's DNA Doe Project. Those are two very different things. And I've worked with both of them. I have. I actually, when I left NamUs, I went to DNA Doe Project and worked in their media for a while. I mean, they're starting with genealogy and then trying to get things into a system so that they can have a match. Well, DNA solves is more of starting in the laboratory. This is what the public can do. And somebody says, what can I do? You can try to promote people donating to this particular case of this Jane Doe or John Doe can be identified. 
we can talk people into uh, submitting their DNA to the ancestry and get it into the system for GEDmatch so that there can be some comparisons made. Can you tell our listeners about your background in TV? I know you've done a lot of interesting projects that I think people would love to know more about, as well as anything that you've got going on in the future. I did a documentary film called The Dead Unknown, and we won an Emmy for it, but it was an accident. It was a total accident. It was the Harlan County Jane Doe from 1969. They call her Mountain Tent Girl, Tent Girl of the Mountains, but she wasn't in a tent, but it was like the equivalent. Center for Investigating Reporting Reveal, they said they wanted to do like a little news piece with me. And if I had some interest in what could we do? And I already been working in Harlan County for eight years to try to work on an old Jane Doe case there. And it just so happened we we're about to exhume that body. I said, well, we're going to exhume a body in Harlan County, Kentucky. Maybe you could follow that alone. And we're going to exhume it in, you know, four days. Immediately said, oh, can we put it off? Can we do this? I, no, you can come with me and observe it. But that's we're going to do it. At this point in time, that's we're going to do it here. You can go or not go. That little news clip turned into a four-part series. It's on Netflix now. Things just happen. People don't realize that took two years to film that, you know, because there was a lot of processes that went in between. It looks like it happened all very quickly. That's when I started to hear from people like Morgan Freeman's company, like, let's do a television series, and you can do this 23 times in a year. It's like, mm, it don't work like that. <laughs> it really don't work like that. As much as I'd like to do something for television, Reality is these things take time. We don't need nine new episodes in nine weeks. Maybe we need to carry something out for an entire season and let people see the minutiae. I had three opportunities to do scripted television. Dick Wolf gave me a phone call. He saw me in People Magazine, and we did a pilot. It was called Lost and Found, and there was a person in it that was supposed to be me. So I had a job there, you know, to do that, like to dress him and talk to him. His name is Damon Harriman, and he went on to play Dewey Crow in Justified. Katie Sackoff, Brian Cox were in it. That was the year that Jay Leno went into primetime. So they didn't initially pick it up. Uh, that was it just weird. And then everybody had to go and do their other jobs. And then, you know, they call back and say, hey, we want it for a mid-season replacement. Everybody was working. You know, There's nothing we could do. So that was just like pipe dream down the drain. What I didn't know then, Jerry Bruckheimer was working on something based directly on some of my work in Doe Network called The Forgotten with Christian Slater quickly got shuffled across L.A. to another film set where they were doing something very similar. It's just like, well, we should have contacted you before, but you were already working with Dick Wolf. That went on for an entire season, but they felt like they owed me something. Forgotten Network, Doe Network. And they said, we want to do a PSA for you. They said, we'll do a PSA for Doe Network. And I said, maybe you should do it for NamUs. And they did. And at least three families saw that watching it and found their own missing loved ones. Well, now I have a chance to do a third scripted series, more in my own thing. Both of the original series, the one in L.A. with Lost and Found, the one in Chicago, set in Chicago, but it was in L.A. with Christian Slater, The Forgotten, is a fish-out-of-water story with what I wrote called Suspicious Minds. It's a script for a film. I literally put the fish back into the water. I spent a couple of years on a houseboat called Suspicious Minds that I bought back in 2017, and I put together a screenplay of what I felt like, and I never knew it would even see the light of day. Suspicious Minds was about a, a couple that lived on a houseboat. I'm kind of letting us be the inspiration for the lead characters on it. It's fact-based fiction. We've been writing all of these down, so we'll have to make a note form for all our listeners so they can catch some of these. If, any, if HBO or Netflix, if they're listening, 
And I've pitched things to HBO Netflix before, different things that I work with, because I've had a lot of production companies that want to do a series with me. But me having to tell them the reality, like we're not going to do 23 episodes and we're going to solve everyone in one season. You have to understand that. The idea of the podcast turned out to be the most ideal. And that's just, let, let's just go to the granular level and work with the family through long-term, not like the typical podcast, but more of the heart and soul of it and just get into the deep things because so much gets left behind. What would you say to somebody who wanted this to be their five to nine job, their passion, people who are just regular people who want to make a difference, I guess, what would you suggest? If you're not looking for pay, obviously a lot of it's got to be a passion project for you. I never knew I would possibly get paid for anything. It'd be a paid job, but it was a hard job. It was a hard job. I think being responsible and teaching people things, sharing the information as much as possible, trying to pass stronger state laws, seeing missing persons, families that are new, they just fell into the land of the lost. They don't know what to do. Show them the resources that they need. And you don't have to be the one that solves it. Instead of being the one that can come in and do this and do that, teach people to fish and they won't starve. We're so excited to hopefully follow you in this next chapter of your life. Since your life took such an interesting turn with so many different avenues that you've gotten to explore, if you can think back to... Todd, when you were a little boy, what did you envision for yourself for your life and what you were doing? So this is a funny thing for you. you you're going to get an answer you're not expecting. So when I grew up, by the time I was aware of my reality, you know, I had a brother and sister that passed away from birth defects. They were both younger men. I have a living brother. I was I grew up with a congenitive heart defect and I wasn't dumb. You know, I didn't say much, but I knew that the language that the doctors at Vanderbilt University were using, that I wasn't intended to live very long. So I knew that. I had an open heart surgery at age eight, and there was still the narrative of extend life. Death wasn't always something that was unfamiliar to me. So I really never thought of, I'm going to be a fireman, I'm going to be a policeman. I never even thought of it. I didn't think there was a thought of it. When I got up to 16, 17, and they're saying, oh, you know, it's sustaining. He's sustained. That was just right before I met Lori, it got to the point that I, I knew oh, maybe I'm not going to die. I never expected to be an adult, let alone a, a person that's a grandfather. It was meant to be, I guess. It was meant to be. Wow. What a wonderful story. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for having me. I just appreciate you guys being fans of the tragedy. <laughs> It feels really good when you have people that know your story almost better than you do sometimes. And you know that at least you made a difference to somebody. That's my immortality. I won't die. I'll still be here. That's good for me. I can I'll, I can deal with that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us. You, I don't know if you're aware, but you've definitely got two fans over here. And I'm sure you have many, many fans and probably many more fans as you continue on your journey. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I'll stay in touch with you, my sweet Magnolias. I'll let you guys know what's going on with television and whatever happens. But, you know, I, I don't get so heartbroken if something doesn't work out the way it was. I think it was supposed to. There's always a way to pull things out and make them go differently. And if something doesn't work, maybe there was a reason there was something better coming along. I just don't get heartbroken over things anymore. I'm going to deal with what I got, the cards on the table. And thank you, guys. I'm big fans of you. I appreciate it, and thank you for lifting us up. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye.